Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's Christmas Eve Eve here on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We're winding down. We'll have one more episode tomorrow on the actual Christmas Eve. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues Chris Ranowski and Jane Cahoon. Laura Johnston has begun the holiday festivities early. Good morning, Chris and Jane. Good morning. Good morning. You're all ready for the holidays. I could hear it in your voice. It's almost like Perpetual Friday here. <laughs> let's, let's get going. Does the Ohio Supreme Court have white line fever with its ruling on the specifics of where tires on your car can quite specifically touch the lines on the side of the highway. Jane Cahoon, this was a story that is like the height of absurdity for me. Every paragraph of this story made me chuckle a little bit more. Uh, So let's get to the heart of why the Ohio (laughs) Supreme Court is resolving a whole bunch of appellate court conflicting decisions to tell you exactly where your tire can go on a highway. Yeah, we wrote this one just for you, Chris, to, so you could get a good laugh. So the the Supreme Court, in a five to two ruling, said that driving on but not over a solid white line on the edge of state highways is not a valid reason for to stop to make a traffic stop. And they ruled that while statewide standards prohibit a driver from crossing those white, they call them fog lines, on the right side of the highway. It's not a violation for car tires to touch them without going over the line. So this involved a case with a guy who was pulled over by a state trooper along Old State Route 74, which is a two-lane highway in Claremont County that's in southwest Ohio. And uh, apparently the guy's two right side tires touched that that white line on the right side of the road. So the stop led to this guy being charged with driving under the influence. And so he sought to suppress the evidence saying that the trooper didn't have a legitimate reason to to pull him over. So this resulted uh, after various legal maneuverings, you know, getting to the Ohio Supreme Court, uh, which decided that while state law requires drivers to stay within clearly marked lanes for traffic as much as possible, The Ohio Department of Transportation's Manual of Uniform Traffic Control Devices says that the lane marker on on Old State Route 74 is the yellow double line in the middle of the highway, not the white fog line marking the edge on the right-hand side. So it says that, you know, so that his touching of that fog line was not a violation. That, as you said, it reversed a split decision by the 12th District Court of Appeals uh, which which had found that the trooper was justified in making this stop, and it, <laughs> but that ruling conflicted with other previous decisions from like six of them. It was yeah. a whole bunch <laughs> from the first, third, fifth, sixth, and eleventh district courts of appeals that driving on the fog line 
isn't illegal. I was mind boggled <laughs> by the fact that all of these appellate courts have considered whether your tire can touch it. The thing that I'm I'm still a little confused about, it sounds like they're saying you can't touch the yellow line. You can just touch the white line, which that makes even less sense to me. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I I don't know. It's just, you know, you think when you're when you're running for the Ohio Supreme Court, you're going to be dealing with abortion and the powers of the governor (laughs) and (laughs) where the the tire could touch the line. I mean, you got to think that as they were listening to this debate, they're looking at each other and thinking, what are we doing? Yeah. Or when they got into their little deliberation, you know, their private deliberation, whether they had any, you know, guffaws over this. Yeah, it's one of those you wish, almost wish they had written it with the humor it deserved. Because well, there was one, the one, there were two dissenters, including (laughs) including Justice Pat Fisher, and this is the closest I guess they got to a sense of humor. He he referenced that line from the Michael Stanley song that says, "Thank God for the man who put the white lines on the highway." (laughs) Well, but what if, like, okay you've tried to share an armrest with somebody on an airplane, right? Like it's like, you know, you both jostle for position on that one thing. What if two cars are going in opposite directions, but both on their respective lines and they clip each other? No, no, no. But this is, that's, that's what I'm getting at with the yellow line. This is the line on the right. So, oh, okay. so right, you right, go right. to the shoulder okay. and that may be the reason that you can't cross onto the, the double yellow line. I don't know. It's just, it's one of those where it popped up. It was delightful. What a good story. Well, then, I think Laura Johnston yesterday when we were discussing the story compared it to like tennis. The, you know, if you, <laughs> if you hit the line, you're in. And, <laughs> and, and, and I guess I, through that logic, that makes some sense. I guess. I, I guess so. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What do nurses think of claims by hospitals that when workers at hospitals get the coronavirus, they get it from their personal lives, not from work? Chris Renaski, we started throwing the flag on this claim about a month ago. It just made no sense that the workers in the hospitals who are confronted daily with death and suffering and tragedy would, as soon as they walk out the door, take their masks off and throw caution to the wind. And yet that is the message that was uniform from all the hospitals, making us wonder whether they were just trying to avoid workers' compensation claims or something. So we we set a reporter off to try and get to the bottom of this. What did we find? Right. So leaders from the Cleveland Clinic, Metro Health, and University Hospitals made assertions on November 16th during a, a news briefing that basically that their 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 employees were were bringing the virus into the hospital and not necessarily contracting it where they work. But those assertions have sort of puzzled many disheartened nurses that we sort of spoke that we spoke to who who question how hospitals can pinpoint where they got the virus outside of of you know these these hospitals and and so I, I there's a lot of people that are sort of disputing this and and I guess what what makes it difficult is that you know none of this is really being tracked very well so so you know who who do you believe and 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 it's it, it's it's a lot of the stuff that you're right. I mean, what everything that has come out, I mean, it's all sort of come down to common sense, right? Like early on, we talked about how it's ridiculous to say masks don't stop the spread because that was what we were told by 
public health officials at the beginning of the pandemic. And we never and you believed go, it. And you go, wait, that, that doesn't make sense. And, you know, to, to say, to say that people aren't getting this in the hospital, I mean, it's like, it's like if you're, if you spend every day in a candy store and you get, you go to the dentist and you find out you get cavities, it's like, well, maybe it has something to do with the fact that you've been in a candy store every day of your life. Like, like, that is to me i just it's just so absurd to to say that well and, and it i i would argue it's actually a bit sinister and, and you know what started this was the clinic put out its statement and was telling everybody in town we've done contact tracing and they're not getting it in the hospital but as you talk to the hospital workers and they're all afraid to go on the record because they they're so afraid the clinic will squash them but they said you know they they ask you questions about where you've been and then they don't tell you what the finding is for you. There's, there's, it, there was no transparency. It was just the clinic saying, we've checked and believe us, they're not getting it at work. Well, that doesn't make any sense. And really, it does a disservice to the people that are putting their lives on the line treating the serious COVID patients. We wrote the story based on the clinic's report. And we felt bad about it because we didn't buy it, but we had nothing to contrast with it. And that's why we did this bigger story. I, I, I think it's preposterous to suggest that the hospital workers, they do everything right while they're at work, see people dying, see tragedy, and then go off and go to clubs and and, and have family gatherings. It's just well, dumb. But, you know, it's... It would be nice if if there was some transparency here. You know, they they want to come out and make the claim that they're not a problem and they're not problematic. Well, you know, how do you how do you make that claim and then not provide evidence to the public? And well, they don't even provide it to the people. They're, yeah, they're not they're not providing it to their employees. Second, they're not. Re I mean, you know, they might be doing a huge disservice to their patients. You know, I mean, I'm a patient at the clinic. I you know this. You know, stuff like this makes me question whether this is a place where I want to do my health business. And well, but it's but it's this this is the level of thing we're talking about. Right. A nurse is not given an N95 mask and ends up in a room with somebody who who a day later tests positive for COVID. So they've been exposed to COVID. The the contact tracer talks to the nurse and they explain that, but the contact tracer also says, Where have you been? And, you know, the, the nurse says, well, three days ago, I was in a grocery store with my mask on buying groceries. The, the contact tracer never comes back to the nurse and says, we've decided that you got this at the grocery store. But that could be what they're deciding. They're just not telling them that, even though there's strong evidence to suggest that's not where they got it. They got it because they were in a room with somebody who who has it. That's the lack of transparency. They're not even coming back and and being honest with the workers. So so anyway, I actually the nurses and the people that we've that talked to Evan, I think they have much more credibility in this than than the executives at the clinic and elsewhere that are trying to convince us that their staff is irresponsible and doing dangerous things. So you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Am I really going to be able to go eight years without having to renew my Ohio driver's license? Jane Cahoon, I asked this question in this segment because for most of the people listening, this is the most substantial thing that the legislature did. <laughs> and it's lame <laughs> to affect people. There's a whole bunch of stuff they didn't do, like repeal the corrupt HB6 that they created, which we'll, we'll get to. But let's talk a bit about the legislature here. Let's start with the driver's licenses. And then let's start with the other stuff. Let's go to the other stuff. 
Okay. Well, this is on its way to to Governor Mike DeWine, so he would have to sign the bill, but it did clear its final legislative hurdle on Tuesday. So it would allow most Ohio motorists to renew their driver's licenses every eight years instead of every four years. And um, so, and then residents of any age could also apply for an eight-year state ID card. This, um, the driver's license part applies to Ohioans between the ages of 21 and 65. That That's the eight-year driver's license. So they do limit it to that age group. And they're going to double the cost of it since it's uh, going to last twice as long. So instead of paying about 25 bucks, you'll, you'll pay 50 bucks or so. And uh, so so that's that. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about a little that bit, part. But- I am a little bit surprised at that because police use driver's license photos when they're trying to track down suspects. And you can change a lot in eight years, especially at at my advanced age, I, I just, I'm surprised. There I wasn't... don't know what you're talking about. I exactly <laughs> the same as I did when I was 21. I, I just think that the law enforcement might have something to say, but there really was no blowback on this. I mean, for, for, for us, it's like, great. I don't have to go wait in line in that place every four years, just every eight. I was disappointed to hear it's not retroactive, that I'll have to still go in in three years to get that eight year license. But do, yeah, so Mike Wine has not given an indication of his feeling on this one. Um, I don't think so. It doesn't seem overly controversial. It had very little opposition. But I, I just would like to point out that there are other parts of this bill that might be more significant than that, although I know the driver's license part is important to you. But it would also permit indigent Ohioans to perform community service instead of paying a fee to reinstate their driver's license, because a lot of people with suspended license get licenses get caught in this cycle of, you know, they, they, they continue to drive because they can't afford the fee. And then this leads to this big downward spiral of more fees and more punishments for them. So that's going to hopefully address that problem. And then another part of the bill would require uh, peace officers and Ohio high school students to take training on how to properly interact with law enforcement during, during traffic stops. And, um, so that would be required for for graduation and offered in driver training programs. Sandra well, Williams, like, a senator from Cleveland, was a sponsor of this. That sounds like stuff that DeWine would get behind, those latter yeah, two things. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, it's sort of uh, touches on criminal justice reform. Uh, are we getting we'll like a, a, talk about, I think. a Dale Carnegie for police? Is that kind of what we're doing? <laughs> <laughs> like, like how to interact with people? I think like what's interesting is like I didn't even think about the fact that they would raise the price of this. And I guess that makes sense. But but that makes this seem like they're just trying to get a little bit of extra money right now. Like that that really what you're doing is is kind of a cash grab to probably shore up some budgets that have been hurt this year because of the coronavirus and and really you know that could hurt these this agency in the future a little bit right i mean am i i don't know is my mental math failing me today <laughs> i don't know if that that came up or anybody talked about the you know the upfront money that they they would get as a result of this but um you know, it's it's a good point you raise. I we'd have to ask about that. But yeah, you're right. There will be a four year cycle. It, it, so say everybody that has a four year license for the next four years it, or get renew at the eight years, and they get all that money. There will be a four year cycle 
in in another four years where they're not getting the kind of revenue that you, they were getting. You're right. They're this is like a borrowing against the future. Right. I have to say though, you know, the justice reform part of this, the 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 fine reform and the community service part of this is uh, that's actually a really big deal. And I didn't yeah. realize that that was a component of this. So kudos to them for doing that because yeah. it's really going to help a lot of people. A lot. We've done all sorts of stories as part of our justice reform project going back almost five years. And that's a big deal. That's how people get locked into that spiral. And if we offer a way out, that's a, that's a positive. I hope he does sign that one. Okay. You're listening. Oh no, wait, we want to talk about all the stuff they didn't do. <laughs> oh, so Jane, why didn't they repeal HB six? And this is one of the most pathetic performances of a legislature I've ever seen. And look, we should put this on the house because the Senate sat back saying, you know, the house created this mess. They say they want to fix it. We won't repeal. We'll wait for them to do it. And then they didn't do it. Right. I, I mean, if if you could just indulge a little more venting f- from me. I mean, I wish every member of the public could watch these sessions that, that our reporters have to endure. It's crazy. You know, all this last minute coming in late, stop, start, stop, start, uh, go eat pizza, go caucus in private and come back and then pontificate, you know, about nothing. So anyway, I'm just like oh, about it. Like I know. I'm worked up about this because it's just like, this is just no way to make laws. But in the case of House Bill 6, of course, they did nothing, as you said. Larry Abhoff, the Senate president who's who's term limited and he's going out of office, he said, you know, I think we should have done a repeal and I think we should have done it a long time ago and I'm disappointed. But the leaders in the House and and Senate um, have said, oh, this is, you know, a complex bill and some of them want to repeal it. Some of them want to reform it. Uh, you know, some of them think there's good policy in, in there, despite the fact it's drenched with scandal. So just making that up. There is no good policy in this. This is this thing was completely built on fiction with no facts. Every time somebody says, you know, this is a good bill, it's just, you know, it shouldn't have been done corruptly. They they gave the one point three billion dollar bailout to the nuclear industry without getting a single piece of evidence that they needed. Everything in this bill, the the guaranteed rate scheme for first energy, it it, it, it it's just sleazy. It was done at the expense of rate Pairs. I, I just can't understand why the House did this. I wonder if we did learn from Jeremy Pelzer's reporting that the owner of the nuclear plants is in the room trying to to make a deal to keep the money working with Bill Sites. I just wonder if if there are legislators that are still in the pocket, still taking the influence of the utilities. And if so, I really hope the FBI is listening like they were because they all ought to be indicted then. They're not serving the needs of the public. I, it, it's mind-boggling that they walked away leaving this thing in place that they created that we now know is completely corrupt. What did DeWine say about it the other day? It's stinking up the room. It was a great yeah, quote. He, yeah, it was a, a good quote. And he said, he said it should have been repealed as well. You know, one factor is, you know, we, as we reported, a judge ruled the other day to block the collection of these bailout subsidies. So, 
I have a feeling that some lawmakers think that kind of gave them either some breathing room or some cover to to put this off until next year, which they still suggest they're going to yeah, deal well, with. I don't buy that. They, were, yeah. they kept suggesting all term that we're going to do it. We're going to do it. They, look, we know they've been in back room saying, look, if we ignore this long enough, Ohio will forget it. And I can tell you, we're never mm-hmm. going to forget it. We'll bring it up every day if we have to. The problem with the judge's ruling is the audacity of First Energy and Energy Harbor is so over the top. I could see them appealing and trying to push this forward. What do they have to lose? There is no one holding them accountable except the FBI. The only agency that is representing the interests of the public here is the FBI and Dave Yost, the attorney general who went to the judge to get it stopped. Got to give him. And the city said so Columbus and Cincinnati yeah. got in, got into the fight, you know, but yeah, so they did. Anyway. Okay. The other thing they didn't do is override the governor's veto of them trying to strip their, his power to issue health orders. This is that, well, it's not even populist. It's populist with a tiny portion of the population that they're trying to satisfy, the anti-maskers. And they passed the law. He vetoed it. Didn't look like they had the votes. They didn't even try to override it, but they did something (laughs) that makes them look even more limp. They put an amendment in another bill. It was so... Can I use the term pissing match? On this oh, podcast? man. We've gone so long without cussing. How, how was it you that broke it? <laughs> you know, the Senate needed to go first on this if they were going to override it. But they said they recognized that the House didn't really have the necessary votes to do it. But then the House was sniping back saying, well, we have the votes to do it. And But in any event, that didn't get done. So what the Senate did was amend this tax bill and they stuck in a provision that would prohibit the governor from closing small businesses in the event they allowed like big box stores to stay open during a crisis because they carry essentials. So they called it like the something like the Fair Business Act or or something like that. So this was intended to be sort of a, a compromise. But the thing is, I don't think the House is going to come back and act on that to it's sign off point. on it. They, they they have a session, I think, scheduled, but it's not even clear whether that would be a voting session. And so that looks just like really doubtful. And they'll probably, you know, because of all this sniping back and forth between the two chambers, they're probably going to just ignore what the Senate did, I would assume. Can I say, though, it's, it's you know, I don't think succeeding in this is the point. I think, you know, the the handful of goobers that support this, you know, get to go out and campaign on the fact that they tried to strip. Mike DeWine of this power. And, and frankly, when you look at these two issues side by side, it's, it's kind of clear why you need somebody in an executive position to make decisions during a pandemic. Because if we left this, if we left <laughs> this decision making process to the legislature, we'd still be, we'd still be debating whether masks are effective or, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, it, 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 we'd it, still it, be driving horse and buggies. If yeah, yeah, right. Like, we'd be, we'd definitely be <laughs> renewing our licenses every year. But, 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 yeah. I mean, like, way to prove your own point here. I guess. I, I don't know. I mean, it's just what a, what a waste. Like, <laughs> like what a waste of time. Yeah, I and you know they can't muster the votes because some of them are sick or isolating because <laughs> you know they walk around without masks there in the state house. It's got to be embarrassing to just tell people that you're a member of this legislature. It's so ineffective and lame. It's this week in the CLE. 
What does House Bill 1 do to help criminal offenders, and why didn't legislators pass the more aggressive Senate Bill 3? Chris Ranowski, we talked about a bunch of stuff the legislature did and didn't do in a previous podcast segment, but but wanted to separate this one out because we've been so heavy on trying to reform the justice system with the series of stories we've done. House Bill 1 does a little bit of that, but they could have gone much further. So what's in House Bill 1 that is happening? What's in House Bill or in Senate Bill 3 that's not? Right. So House Bill 1, basically the House sent this bill to DeWine and it encourages more criminal offenders to go into drug treatment and makes it easier for them to seal their criminal records, which is, you know, two very important things because, you know, as we've written about extensively, a lot of the people who died in jail died of overdoses and, you know, they, the people would probably be better served, you know, going to a treatment center than, than to a lockup facility. You know, most, a lot of people who are sit, who sit in our jails are there because they have issues with drugs and, and, and the criminal justice route is not necessarily where they should be. And being able to, you know, seal criminal records is very important as, you know, we talk about when we do right to be forgotten stuff is, you know, it helps people, you know, put their past behind them and, and move on with their lives and hopefully, you know, rebuild their lives. What appears to be dead and, and what did not pass was a bill that would reclassify low-level felony drug offenses as misdemeanors. Um, and, and, and that's, and that's kind of a, that's kind of a shame because, you know, we're, we're still sort of, you know, you're still sort of criminalizing basic you know, drug addiction for people who, who are struggling with drugs. And, and really it, it it would have been nice if both of these had passed and the governor had signed both of them because it really would have addressed that these things complement each other very well. And I think they would have, you know, the Senate bill three would have have really sort of complemented house bill one a lot. So uh, and the fear about Senate bill three by the people that oppose it was that you're taking away judicial discretion, that, that having the ability to to wave the felony at people gets them to cooperate more fully. But we've talked in the past that prosecutors abuse that all the time. They overcharge people to get them to plead guilty, sometimes to stuff they didn't do to avoid trial. And so what by not passing Senate Bill 3, you're basically preserving the ability of prosecutors to beat people over the head with charges that should not apply. Right. And I think prosecutors and and you know, chief justices should know better. You know, we're 30 years deep into a drug war that has been in a, as ineffective as about anything that this country has ever done. And I, I don't know when people like this are going to get it through their head that punishing people who have drug problems is not an effective way to keep people from doing drugs. You have to address addiction at the, at the base level, at the treatment well, level. And it's not, this me, is not working. Let me, let me play devil's advocate and I'm not, um, this is not my position. I'm just stating what the other is. The, the, their feeling is is that if I if I don't have the ability to hang a felony over your head, I can't get you into drug treatment. That you will take the misdemeanor penalty in stride and not go to drug treatment. But if I have the felony where I can lock you up, I can. But again, look, that gets back to the idea of abusing the laws, right? Because because then I'm using stuff that should not apply to you to right. coerce you into something. And, and- and- Threatening people with jail does not is not good for their mental health and certainly probably does not, you know, help the the recovery process in any way. 
And, and it's, it's like, like, I think what they don't understand is what the stress of that does to people who have addiction problems. Right. You know, it's cruel in a way. Prosecutors aren't, supposed to be bullies you know they're supposed to be you know in you know enforcing and prosecuting these laws and and scaring people into plea deals is a problem and and i know prosecutors don't see it that way because you know they they try to get all these cases off their books every year and one of the one of the tools they have to do it is saying like look we're going to throw the book at you unless you take this deal and and you know and that's how we move these cases off their books but, but what is what was nice about this debate though is you did see republicans really for the first time acknowledging some of the issues you're discussing i don't think we're at the end of this journey i think this will come up in future but, sessions um and but, it'll be, a, but it has we, to be stressed that 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 if you if you go out and you claim to be a a fiscal conservative, the route of treatment is cheaper than yeah, incarceration. No, that's what I'm saying. There, there. I think you did see a recognition of that. You did see a recognition in some quarters of. And look, the treatment centers have lobbies too. So if if the issue is is you need campaign money, talk okay. to talk to the treatment <laughs> folks. All right, you're listening to this week in the CLE. I left this one to last for a reason. What is the Ohio News Media Association's argument for getting journalists closer to the front of the line for the coronavirus vaccine? Jen Kuhn, I hate this one because it's put me at odds with some of my colleagues across the state. I think this is a mistake. What's the argument for? And then I'll talk about the argument against. Yeah, the argument that they made in a letter that they sent to Governor Mike DeWine asking him to prioritize journalists in the, in the next round here is that the the media provides important information throughout the pandemic. They they assume risks and they cover things like rallies, protests, and public events. And in order to serve as first informers, they have to interact with government officials and the public. And they say it's not a conflict of interest. They're they're a trade association like other associations, and part of their role is to to lobby. But people like you and Toledo Blade, uh, President and Executive Editor Kurt Frank, have some reservations about this. That yes, we're you know concerned uh, about journalists' health, of course, but you know should they get pre- preferential treatment or skip in front of the line? No, you know, maybe not. So you can well, maybe articulate yeah, your I mean, reservations about this, Chris. My reservations, there's, there's uh, is several fronts. One is we have spent this pandemic representing the people. We've gotten more gratitude from our audience on this than anything before because they feel like we're looking out for them. And when, while we're looking out for them, we're going to say, but by the way, we want to move ahead of you in line. It's a terrible look. We are of the people. The media is of the people. We should operate like the people. We've covered this pandemic for 10 months without having the vaccine. We can do it for two more. The other issue is we're the ones that hold the governor's feet to the fire. We're the ones that that call him out when he does things that are questionable. It's really icky then to be saying, oh, and by the way, could you please do us a favor and move us to the front of the line or or further up in the line? I mean, just just last week, we were the ones asking him the question, are you doing anything in your role to make sure the hospitals are using the vaccine on frontline workers and not office workers and administrators? His answer was no. But if but if we were asking 
to be moved to the front of the line? I'm not sure I'd feel comfortable asking that question. So I, I feel pretty strongly we should not be asking for this. I understand. I completely understand the position that that our folks are, are like restaurant workers and others who are out there. But I, we've done it for 10 months. We could do it for a couple more months. Yeah, I mean, we've managed to do quite a lot without going out of our own homes. Yeah, no, I, I feel our very jobs. proud. This is the best year, I think, of, of, of the performance of our newsroom ever. I'm really proud of the work we've done. And we did it in the most challenging of circumstances. And I think we can continue doing it. I, I, look, I, I think we've built a lot of trust with our with our audience, and I don't want to abuse that in any way. You're listening this week in the CLE. We went a little long, and we didn't even get to all our questions, but we have one more day to get to the final question of the week. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. 